0: And welcome to this edition of Montgomery Talks. I'm senior news editor Doug Tallman at Montgomery Community Media. And we're talking today with Senator Will Smith, who's who's calling us in from his office in Annapolis. He represents District 20, which includes Tacoma Park, Silver Spring, White Oak and Colesville. Welcome Senator Smith.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Happy New Year.
0: Uh, Happy New Year to you too. Um, Your biography reveals a succession of promotions in the last six years or so that I think is is, uh, remarkable. You were first elected to the House of Delegates in 2014, and then you moved to the Senate in 2016 to take the position formerly held by Jamie Raskin when Raskin was elected to the House of Representatives. Um, And now the General Assembly is starting its 2020 session on January 8th, which as we record this would be uh, uh, next Wednesday, just a few days away. Um, And if as expected... Senator Bill Ferguson becomes the new Senate president and Ferguson has said he will choose Smith to take over the leadership of the Judicial Proceedings Committee. That's the Senate committee that hears all the crime bills. So um, that seems like a remarkable uh, trajectory for someone's career um, in the the legislature.
1: I I assume, I guess so. Um, It's, you know, I I remember I ran uh, the campaign for uh, Jamie Raskin, head of Sheila Hickson, and Tom Hucker uh, in 2010. And that really got me interested in, in running for office myself. And when there were two vacancies uh, during the 2014 election, I ran, and along with David Moon, uh, we were elected along with Sheila Hickson. And when Jamie ran and won for Congress, that just opened up a spot. And then, you know, stepped up and, and competed for that position. And, and once I got to the Senate, um, things it's just a much smaller body. And if you keep your head down, you work hard. And, um, like, you know, play nicely with others, generally, and then you're, you know, you're in a, b- a prime position to to get yourself promoted. Um, and so, yes, when Bill Ferguson takes over on January eighth, um, when our session starts, he'll be the first new Senate president in um, thirty years, thirty-two years. And so, this change in leadership, not only in his position, but then uh, my position at judicial proceedings, and then also Guy Gazzoni and at the budget and tax really does mark a, a generational and an ideological shift within the Senate, the likes of which we haven't seen in over 30 years. you got to remember, um, Senator Miller is the only senator that was a senator before he was Senate president. So um, I, I think we were doing the calculations the other day, and I think 174 senators have served under President Miller. So wow. that's like, you know, a three-time turnover of every senator almost um, uh, for, uh, for his tenure. So it's, it's a really remarkable tenure that's coming to an end in January.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, and he will remain a senator for the rest of his term. Or at least that's his plan. Um, he's not uh, stepping down from – he's stepping down from the presidency, but he's not stepping down from representing uh, was it? District 27, I believe, Correct.
1: That's right. So he's 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 going to be a, a senator, um, and he's going to serve out the end of his term. Obviously, he took a step back to to fight his cancer, um, right. just not having the energy and 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 um, level of, uh, I guess even you know, resources. And you know, he needs to channel his extra his energy toward fighting cancer. So he's going to be doing that, uh, but still serving the body. Um, he'll be on the budget and tax committee, and I think that's a great value add for all of us. Um, as he's handed over uh, the range to, to Bill Ferguson, uh, we'll still have the benefit of his expertise and his experience in the body. And so I think it's a great thing.
0: Okay. And and I I can imagine that being very difficult, um, especially for someone as young as Bill Ferguson and someone as um, as as uh, experienced as um, Mike Miller sitting down in the um, uh, in the Senate chamber. um I um I don't envy um Mr. Ferguson. I believe that um but you know that's why he's uh that's why he, that's where he is and I'm not, so
1: <laughs> Well it's an enviable task for anyone, but uh, he he likens it to um you know, no one remembers who replaced Calrick in its shortstop, so Ryan Miner. kind of like st- it, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like having Kaepernick still on the on you know on the field. Right. And, hey, you should this have done this a little this way, a little that way. Kind of right. It'll be an interesting situation, but uh, right. Bill's definitely the right man for well, job. He's got the right temperament, um, right. and he's a smart guy.
0: Okay. Um, before we start talking local politics, I did want to talk on your military service. Um, sure. You you left for Afghanistan before the end of the 2019 session, and you spent about six months there. Correct. That's
1: right. So I left, yeah, about two weeks before the end of session, and then uh, spent. It was I a seven-month deployment, but um, mm-hmm. mostly in Kabul and a little bit in Doha, okay. in Qatar, monitoring some of the peace talks that were going on between the Taliban and the U.S. government.
0: Okay, and you served as an intelligence officer, correct?
1: That's right. Um, so I'm a Navy reservist and. We're individual augmentees. We deploy not as a unit, but individually, and we get attached to a unit. I was attached to an army unit, the Fourth Armored, the First Armored Division, rather, uh, out of Texas. So, um, I served as branch chief for governance in ANDSF, which is the Afghan National Security Defense Force. And so, my job essentially entailed monitoring developments within the election, and then also with the defense force, and reporting it back to the senior uh intel officers in my unit um in this case it was a the head of the combined joint intelligence operations center and then also general miller who is the 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 commander of uh, our forces in afghanistan
0: so is there anything you could say about your service that um i mean uh uh, we've been fighting in afghanistan for so many years um is there anything you saw that um would make you think that um that this is a, a a noble cause, or is this something that uh, um, uh, we should be trying to extricate ourselves from?
1: Okay. I'll say first that it was a remarkable time to be over there, and a historic time to be over there. Uh, it was during their election; it was only the fourth time that they've held a presidential election in their in their fragile and, and fledgling democracy. So that was uh, fascinating to observe and to assist with. Um, you know, people literally risked their lives to go vote, and that was an inspiring um, thing to witness and participate in. Uh, especially when you compare it to you know, making sure that we get folks out here to vote and get access to vote. It's, it starts to put the importance of civic participation in a, in a different perspective when you view it through that lens. But um, I'll say that you know, despite what was, what was published in the Afghan Papers um, in the Washington Post this last month, which I think was much needed and, and shed some much needed light on the situation there that every taxpayer should be aware of, every American should be aware of, uh, there are some really, really inspiring and good things that are happening over there. Uh, for instance, the, the parliament in Afghanistan is comprised of one third women, which is uh, something that's mandated by the constitution, but still it's, it still happens. Um, you have a constitution there that is more protective of religious and ethnic minorities than ever before. Uh, it operates under the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And, uh, like I said, you just had an election, um, which is the fourth successful, I'd say. Um, democratic exercise of a presidential election. And then, frankly speaking, and most important to, to every American is that we haven't, Afghanistan hasn't been used as a staging ground for another terrorist attack on domestic soil. So, you know, by those metrics, there's been some significant progress. The question then becomes what is our level of sustainment and how long are we going to stay there to ensure that this is, that the progress continues and that we don't get attacked? When I left, the month I left, um, when I left in late October, early November, the first American soldier who was not alive during 9-11, September 11, 2001, arrived in Afghanistan. So it just shows you how long we've been there. We've been there for 18, over 18 years now, and it's our longest war, and it's a question that every, every taxpayer, every voter, and every political and military leader are going to have to continue to, to ask is you know whether we need to still... Have our level of standard there? We've fourteen thousand American troops in there at the moment, and so uh, me personally, I think that we could draw down and still have a, a, a counterterrorism platform, um, but it's going to take a lot of sacrifice and a lot of uh, willpower and stepping up to the plate from the, the Afghans and the Afghan government. So we'll
0: see. Okay. Uh, we woke up this morning to um, the news that a U.S. drone strike had killed Iran's top security and intelligence officer, uh, uh, in the wake of the attacks on the Baghdad, um, um embassy. Um, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's funny. My first thoughts actually went to the, when I was in boot camp in Fort Jackson, uh, getting place, I was actually, we trained with a lot of people that were going to the embassy and to Iraq. So it was my first thing was to reach out to them and see how they were doing. But, um, look, it was obviously, obvious victory for us. Um, the top general um, responsible for a lot of the strategy in um, uh, iran and obviously you're operated in iraq um was you know responsible for the deaths of dozens of american allies and soldiers uh, so that's definitely a, a, a big victory for us on the other hand um now we have to be in a more aggressive posture in terms of defense and seeing what type of retaliation um the Iranians are, are seeking. So that's it's it escalates things, uh certainly. I remember when I was in uh Doha in Qatar, which is right off the Gulf, and very close to Iran, um uh, we were they 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 were on high alert because of the escalated tensions with in the Gulf and the Straits of Hormuz. Um Having a drone strike, uh, one of our drones struck down. Uh, that that was in a heightened tense. So I can't even imagine what it, what it must feel like there on the ground after it was something like this. But um, you know, we shall see.
0: Okay, let's get back to Maryland. Um, now, um, now I, I'm hedging my bets here because it, I'm assuming you're going to become chairman of uh, judicial proceedings, but um, it, um, it still has to be um, voted on by the full Senate or. Um, uh ferguson's vote still has to be um voted by on the full senate and but the democrats have certainly enough votes to determine who's going to be the um the next senate president um but assuming you know you're the judicial proceedings chair how do you think the committee's going to change well the committee's going to change
1: and you know I'm, I'm good great friends with the current chairman bobby zirkin uh, who announced his resignation and um from not only from the legislature so he's mm-hmm. also stepping down as chairman but We're just, we're very different in terms of our philosophy and our ideological background and our approach. Um, And so I think stylistically, we'll be a little different, but then also in terms of policy, we're going to be very different. The composition of the committee is also very different. So we have a seven to four majority Democrats uh, on the committee. And if you look at the composition, Shelley Hedelman or Uh, John Carden will come over to the the committee uh, from Baltimore County to replace uh, Bobby Zerkin, both of whom are considerably more, I guess, liberal or progressive uh, if you're using those labels. And then we have Charles Sidmore, who's going to be on the committee. He's from Baltimore County, that's bit to Baltimore City. He is considerably more progressive than his predecessor, who was not on the committee. Um, And then you have Ron Young. Jeff Wallstreicher is now... The vice Chair of that committee, so you've got a lot of uh, really progressive folks, if you're going to use again those labels, on the committee, um, and then me swapping out for for uh, Senator Zirkin. So um, the slant is going to be a lot more progressive and just a, a different approach. Um, now, having said that, I think that one thing that I, you know I want to address is that this doesn't mean that everything is going to get through, and that we're going to push everything that was bottled up. My number one goal is to to set up a a, a committee that runs smoothly, that has uh, very clear policies in terms of how it's going to operate, and so that it maximizes everyone's talents, including the council here that work here, so that we produce the best policy possible. Um, And the best you know, uh, policy for Maryland. So uh, the standard, we deal with all things from judicial proceedings to murder, rape, uh, property, traffic, We deal with so much stuff, it's so important that I I want to remind folks that are listening that our community really can't afford to be partisan. We have to focus on the merits of the issue and try to get it right. So that's going to be my focus is to ensure that we put out quality products and that we set up a set of systems that uh, ensure that we we, we have the best chance to do that.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, you touched on something that I wanted to ask you about because um, for many years... The two crime committees, um, your committee and the the House Judiciary Committee, were led by chairmen who were um, probably considered more conservative Democrats. Um, And I'm thinking of um, uh, Delegate Valerio and um, Walter Baker, who goes back many, many years. Baker, of course, was... Brian
1: Frosch. Right. And
0: then, uh, then, of course, Brian Frosch, who I don't know that he would consider himself conservative, but because of the nature of the Senate, it seemed like... um, a lot of bills just – it seemed like a, lots of crime-related bills would get bottled up and it would be very hard to get them to pass. And people would say that's a good thing because you don't want emotion to make uh, a decision on uh, certain issues. However, I think a number of advocates would probably take the contrary position on on whatever it is they're fighting for, whether it's uh, domestic violence or, or gun control or whatever and say, look, we need to do something. So um, – now the two committees, you and uh, Luke Clippinger, who will be ta- who is the chairman of uh, um, House Judiciary, are both fairly progressive folks, and my guess is you probably agree on lots of issues. So it would probably be a lot easier for um, your committees to present to the floors of your chambers um, issues that may not have been so easily passed in previous years. Is that a fair assessment? That's that's certainly
1: true, um, you know. And, uh, to add to that, we actually have a really good relationship. The chairs of the respective bodies haven't necessarily had the best working relationships, and Luke and and I have a very good working relationship. We meet all the time. In fact, we're going to meet later today to discuss some of the uh, the ways we're going to move forward and some of the issues we're planning to push next year. Um, so that's it's a, certainly a fair assessment. And in terms of you know, where we are today. Um, Look, all the end, you know we're in a new year, 2020. The end of year reports come out, and lots of statistics start being uh, thrown across the newspapers. Baltimore City had 348 homicides. Um, it was the second dead, deadliest year on record there. And it's the fifth consecutive year with over 300 homicides. Baltimore uh, to, County, for instance. I'm sorry in to South interrupt West. you.
0: I just want uh, our listeners to make sure we uh, you, that statistic kind of got bubbled in the uh, in the cell coverage. You said oh, three, sure. 348 murders in Baltimore. Homicides. Homicides in Baltimore City. In Baltimore City.
1: Yeah. Okay. And that's uh, that's the second deadliest, uh, you know, on record in Baltimore City. Okay. Um, Baltimore County, for instance. Uh, their homicide rate jumped 52% in 2019. So we're going to see a huge focus or refocus again on combating violent crime in the city um, and to a lesser extent in Baltimore County. And the, um, you know, the, the, the temptation and the I think the, the pressure will be to jack up sentences, maybe even mandatory minimums, um, and to um, go with a more harsh, heavy hand on some of these sentences. The governor has already indicated as such with his uh, crime package that he's planned to introduce or reintroduce this year. And I remember, so, you know, I remember the debate was hot and heavy, and I voted for a bill that would have given some discretionary enhancements to uh, people that were convicted of a violent crime on the third time. Um, But the bill also had various and sundry you know funding mechanisms safe streets like we're talking millions of dollars for safe streets and other community programs and initiatives um uh, that would help get, you know reduce recidivism rates and then keep people out of the criminal justice system in the first place um that bill didn't pass and, and for various reasons but this year i'm committed to rebuffing any efforts to significantly enhance. Sentencing and to uh, incorporate any new mandatory minimums into our code because it simply doesn't work and it doesn't make us safer and it doesn't drive down um, recidivism. You know, one of the big lessons I learned—I mean, everyone—it you know, was the sensational book uh, *The New Jim Crow* comes out. Michelle Alexander, this is like six, seven years ago. Well, I think a, a, a little less known book—it's called *Locking Up Our Own*. Um, Crime and Punishment in Black America, and it was uh, James Farman Jr. He, he wrote this book. He's a Yale law professor. And at the end of, not last session, but the session before, he sent that book to several members of the judicial committees here in Maryland. Well, I got it, and I came to the office, and I read it, and I started reading I the whole book in, in one night. I just couldn't put it down. I called him up, and he happened to be in Baltimore the next month, and so we sat down and had a long lunch and discussed a lot of what was in the book. The book revealed, I mean, it's kind of it was a, a history. Uh, he was a, he was a prosecutor in washington, d c, and he he basically chronicled how African American politicians in particular uh, were really keen on harsher sentences, mandatory minimums, and going out to drug crimes. Um, and so obviously, I think we've done a great job with decriminalizing gun uh, with, uh, drugs and and moving away from those harsh sentences. I think now our focus is more difficult because it's violent crime, and it's getting it's hard it's more difficult politically to have that discussion with people that says, hey, look, maybe the longer sentences for emerging adults, people that are 20 to 24 is not the way to go. Maybe we need to invest more on training, vocational training, academic training, community programs, um, things that won't bear fruit for several years. It's not an immediate gratification um, type of thing, uh, but it's politically I think the most expedient and the best investment we can make to drive down the citizen and to invest in our communities, but it's not politically expedient. Um, and so that's, that's going to be the next struggle, I think, when the governor comes down with this crime bill. Um, There's a lot of media attention and a lot of focus and a lot of pressure to do something right now. And the problem is a lot of the, the most important things you can do and the most effective things we can do are long-term investments. And those things take time, and you're not going to have immediate gratification for the political cycle. And um, frankly, I'm not interested in this immediate gratification. I'm interested in a long term structural change that's going to make a difference for communities of color, for all of our communities, frankly. But um, because communities of color are disproportionately affected here, uh, it's significant. Um, and then, I know I'm going on and on, but another thing right. that this dovetails well with the Justice Policy Institute, they just released a report uh, in November. And I remember reading this report because it was on my way back from, in the Warrior Transition Program in Germany getting back online, trying to read as much as I can to get sped up for coming back here. And they, uh, they, they released a report that was uh, it was damning. It shows that Maryland's incarceration rate um, for African-Americans, especially young African-Americans, but is, is the highest in, um, in, in the nation. We're ahead of the next closest uh, state, which is Mississippi, which means that we lock up more African-Americans than any other state in the country, percentage-wise. Um, and it's a new person coming in to the judicial proceedings committee. This is something that, um, if, if this isn't top of mind, this isn't something that you're, you're interested in addressing head on. I don't know what is. So that's, that's a theme that I'm definitely going to address this year, uh, coming into the, to the sessions. So how to combat violent crime and how to, how to address our, um, racial disparities in incarceration in Maryland. So that we're not the worst in the country. Um, are two things that I'm, I'm definitely focused on.
0: Um, I just want to back up a second. The name of that book you mentioned before was what?
1: It's called "Locking Up Our Own." It's by James Forman Jr. and it's a, he's a Yale Law professor. It came up. It came out uh, probably three years ago at this point. Three years ago. It's called "Locking Up Our Own." It's it's a great book uh, that kind of I think finishes what the, the Michelle O'Vander uh, the New Jim Crow kind of starts, mm-hmm. and it puts this in a new perspective and adds a little bit of flavor to it. And he's—he's—he's—I mean—he's critical and harsh with some of the you know some folks that we would aim as civil so rights and political giants in the African American community, Eric Holder. I mean, he's not he he's hes fair in his treatment of Eric Holder and his uh, record when he was in the Justice Department. It's some—it was really revealing and enlightening. So, highly recommend your your listeners pick that book up if they have a chance.
0: Well, because I work in a newsroom, this is an issue that um, I think about often, um, and that's the what happened at the uh, Annapolis Capitol offices uh, been eighteen months ago, I guess, but we're coming up on. Um, I know that there was some effort to try to um, plug a couple of loopholes in the in our gun legislation that um, um, the man accused of that shooting um, apparently uh, capitalized on. Um, do you see any kind of action on that this in this session?
1: Yes. That's and some other top priority for a couple of reasons. One is that bill languished in our committee, um, and the delays for various reasons made it impossible for it to get voted on in time to get passed or onto the floor to give it a fighting chance. Um, So Senator Susan Lee is has a bill that will essentially expand background checks for long long guns. Right now, you you have just the regulated firearms are are. are required for a mixed background check, which is a national database that's maintained by the FBI and Homeland Security. Um, So this bill would essentially ensure that, um, would ensure that long guns, people that are transferring long guns to a friend uh, or selling their long gun, um, that that person in receipt of that has to go through a background check before they take it. So for instance, today in Maryland, if I have a long gun, um, I uh, can pull on the side of the of the road, and you can meet me, and you can give me three hundred dollars, and I can I'll give you my gun, and no one is no one's required to undergo a background check, and and that's over, it's done, the transaction's finished. This bill seeks to close that loophole, and that's a loophole that um, that the the shooter in, in the Capital Gazette and several others have used, um, to circumvent, um, background checks and, 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 and gone to commit some, some pretty heinous crimes. So, um, that will be top of mind. That's the, our number one, um, you know, gun sense legislation for this year for 2020. That's my number one promise and priority to get that out of this committee. One time uh, for a
0: fair vote on the floor. I mean, that's exactly the role of the chairman of, a, of any committee is to get legislation out. You know, kill the legislation that well, that you want killed and then get the legislation that you want out. That's right. Um, so, I mean, but again, I go back to the standard.
1: Not interested in popping things out just to pop them out and to, to satiate or to appease interest groups right. um, and, and advocates interested in, in producing quality legislation that's going to address real problems in Maryland. I mean, everyone, to, to his credit, there were a couple of, um, you know, when I was on Joe Valerio's committee, uh, when I was in the House, um, you know, I don't think that there are lots of good things, there are lots of examples of good examples of bad examples, but there are lots of really good examples and Sage advice that he was able to dispense that I was able to pick up from him. One is, you know, every piece of legislation should at least go under, undergo the three part test is, you know, what's the problem is trying to solve? Um, does the legislation solve that problem? And then what are the unintended consequences? And if you do things through those lines that just at the bare minimum of what, what those three kind of criteria are to get through, uh, and you ensure that it, it's a tight piece of legislation that actually does what it's supposed to do, it fits into the code, and that there aren't any strange or peculiar unintended consequences, um, I think that's the job of a chairman to ensure that quality gets out. So again, there will be immense pressure from interest groups, the left and right, advocates from the left and the right, to just pop things out. But again, I'm not interested in just popping things up. I'm interested in, in popping up quality legislation that's going to address real problems and help Marylanders. So um, that's the tone that we're looking to set uh, in
0: 2020. Well, Thank you, Senator. I appreciate this conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot about uh, what we can expect in our uh, 2020 session, which starts... January 8th, and then it'll end, I guess, with the first week in April. Um, So, uh, best of luck to you, sir.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure and honor.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. All right. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, Senior News Editor at uh, Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today has been Adam Wyatt. Thank you very much. Bye bye.